The Women in Agile podcast series amplifies voices of outstanding women in the Agile community. We're dedicated to sharing the wisdom and inspiration our community has to offer by telling our stories, being thought leaders, and having open conversations with our allies. This series is brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile organization and Scrum.org. Hello, this is Leslie Morse, and welcome to another episode of the Women in Agile podcast. Today's episode is full of laughter and wildly exploratory conversation. You're about to tune into my chat with the vivacious, intelligent, and amazingly eclectic Summer Lawrence. Summer is the Agile Development Steward at Insight Enterprises, and as we'll hear in this episode, there is no lack of passion when it comes to her helping Agilists discover powerful ways to grow their skills and proficiency. I'm not kidding when I say Summer is one of the coolest people I know. When she isn't geeking out on all things Agile, you can usually find her building something in the shop with Science Friday on the radio. And by the way, she's also a classically trained opera singer. I'm going to go ahead and steal her thunder from the end of the episode, though, but I think it's really important for you to go in listening with this framing in mind. As you'll hear Summer say, it's about getting good at getting better. This is beyond true, and I hope you find plenty of nuggets in this episode that inspire you to do just that. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to connect with me or the Women in Agile Org on LinkedIn to let us know what you think of the podcast. Happy listening. Hello, Summer. Hi, Leslie. I am um, feeling a little giddy and also (laughs) (laughs) aware that um, if we gave a penny to our listeners for every time there was laughter, they would be rich after listening to this episode, I imagine. Most likely. Yes. I'm so glad that you are in my network and part of my tribe. Oh, are you kidding? I'm glad you introduced me to a tribe. Um, Women in Agile is a new thing for me, and I'm loving every bit of it so far. Yay. That is great to hear. Yeah. As long as we keep laughing. If it gets boring, I'm out. Yes. (laughs) And nothing about this group that in the community that I've been involved with here has been boring. So if that happens, please wave the red flag. Oh, sure. Sure. No problem. So um, as you know, when we have guests on the show, we start with two regular opening questions because I love to hear these stories from everybody. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, for listeners that don't know you, let's ground them in your Agile origin story. How did you find Agile? How did it find you? Like what brought you to being here talking with me today? Oh yeah. Well, I totally over-prepared for this and I've forgotten it all. So (laughs) I'll, I'll start off at the beginning. Um, I'm a really restlessly curious person. And funny enough, I found that my journey mimics a lot of other Agilists I've talked to, which is kind of like the crooked man in the crooked house with the crooked path that gets to the crooked place. Um, That is me. I went through three or four different industries and roles. A lot of them. I was really curious about product development, about R&D, about project management. I even spent a couple of years in intellectual property management. So, you know, um, logos, IP, all of that stuff. And then I landed in project consulting because I decided I needed stability. And I've heard that project management was exciting and stable at the same time. And I'm like, oh, unicorn. (laughs) I'm going to do the unicorn thing. So I I went to go work for a consultancy as a project manager after getting my PMP. Mm -hmm. So I was the newest on the block and they threw me under the Agile bus. They had a customer who wanted an Agile consultant and they had no idea how to do agility. So they sent me to a uh, 
use this certified CSM training. And then they shot me off to the client. Uh, the client, funny enough, was Lily Pharmaceutical. And they had this clinical open innovation group. And I showed up thinking, ties, coats, corporate office. So I showed up in the only suit I think I've ever owned. And a pair of pumps. <laughs> And I walk up to this door that looks like an abandoned factory. And I double check my map because at the time Google Maps was a little iffy, right? I had my trip tick on my first day at work. And I walk in and there's all these developers in utility kilts and five finger toes shoes attaching yoga rings to the girders on the ceiling. And I'm like, I do not know where I am. <laughs> this was before those things were cool. Um, turns out it was an experimental branch of Lilly Pharmaceutical. And what they were trying to do was rapidly prototype applications to increase compliance for clinical trials and research. Their purpose was not to actually create a usable product. Their purpose was to refine and vet ideas. They were no, narrowing the code of uncertainty for Lilly. And with what I know now, I would say Lilly has a high priority on what we call, a, what would you call it, a cost reduction as mm -hmm. a business value aspect part of refinement. So this whole team was there to do rapid experimentation. So Scrum was not the correct agile approach for this team. And I spent a lot of time clinging to my agile principles. Like I went to the agile manifesto page, clicked on the click with the, you know, the principles behind the agile manifesto. I printed it out with me. I think I had five copies stashed around the office and they were my lifeline. That was my introduction to agility, was a holy baptism in the uh, agile principles behind the manifesto and making every decision every day about how to help this team just relying on those principles. And what about that sort of, I, like I'm imagining just like dropping you in a boiling vat of yeah, experimentation. Kind of, that, that pretty much, that's accurate. Yeah. Good job. What, what about that was so compelling to lead you on a career to now you're a professional scrum trainer, yeah. you lead a practice within um, Insight Global where you work now, where you really yeah. focus on honing the skills of other agilists and other agile consultants and coaches. Like yeah. what, what made this stick for you and why are you still here? Yeah. I think what it made it stick for me the most was the team that was there and the leaders who were supporting that team um, ignored the way things were and took it upon themselves to prove the value of how things could be better. So their managers, for example, rewrote the entire communication policy to be able to address um, issues with rapid release. You know, they, they rewrote a lot of the governance to make sure that the team was still in compliance with governmental regulations, but could rapidly experiment. And I saw the effectiveness of having everybody in lockstep. And they came up with brilliant, brilliant solutions that I still don't understand. Probably would understand them better now. But I was in a little haze of clinging to my agile principles. So I was a little focused <laughs> at the time. But um, I think it's the fact that I saw that... Uh, you could get to a very unexpected, valuable solution by going somewhere you weren't sure where it led. I was on a path up to that point where you could always see the end of the road when you were at the front of the road with project management. You knew where you were getting to, mm -hmm. and that's where you were going to land. 
this team was comfortable with experimentation. They were really comfortable with the unknown. And I think what that did was it made me comfortable with this fact. Experiments spawn more experiments. It's almost contagious, viral to an extent. Yeah. Well, I think we're hardwired. I think that's it. I think that's that's what happens to us is we're hardwired like this as human beings. And my husband, when I was talking to him about some of the things I wanted to talk about today, he asked me what kind of feedback I wanted for uh, technical correctness. And I told him none. Um, <laughs> if you think about it, as children, we experiment constantly. Yeah. we are constantly. As children, we are doing nothing but navigating the unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Even sound is secondary to us pushing against the world and seeing yeah. how it pushes back. I mean, I remember the first time I got truly fascinated with the science of learning was when I was watching um, my little cousin Sarai. She was toddler hat on Velcro shoes, trying to climb up steps and she learned about Velcro. This is how she learned about Velcro. She got up to like the 10th step and her Velcro had come undone on her shoe and her foot was stuck on the carpet on the stone. She could get up. So she sat there and I watched her for 10 minutes. She tested her foot, the shoe, turned around, tested the carpet, finally figured out that Velcro opened and closed, figured out that closed Velcro was the, was the ideal state for what she wanted to do, turned around and proceeded up the steps. You know, she wasn't in a hurry. She was gonna figure this out. And it, so was, it was fascinating to me. And I started thinking, when do we lose that? Yeah. Well, there's something to me about um, when you're a kid, there's this illusion that adults have it all figured out. So I think we are subconsciously programmed that when we're an adult, we have to have it all figured out. And the one thing that I have learned in my nearly 39 years on this planet now is adults do not have it figured out, nor do I ever expect to have it figured out. And I'm kind of done pretending that I do. That's probably better for your mental health. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I found this in my own career. I have thankfully started making a career out of uncertainty. So I'm really grateful about the place I stand in right now. I run an agile development program for our teammates at Insight. And my whole career right now is about embracing uncertainty and teaching other people to do it. So where I am now, I love, but in my career, Following the rules was perceived to be success. Mm -hmm. There was this myth that there were steps to success there, whether it was in a project in your career and how you do your job, it was all steps and output based. It was very rarely outcomes based Mm -hmm. and compliance to those things, determination, being hardworking, working long hours, you know, adopting best practices, one of my least favorite phrases yep. <laughs> in the project management world, is what got you success. And it hit me when I was watching her go up the steps that adopting that mindset was correlated to reducing my ability to learn through experimentation. Mm. It's like the more I believe that there is a path to success, the less likely I am to experiment, to find out what's possible. Yeah, I totally, I I totally agree. 100%. So before we really unpack this idea of experimentation and learning, Mm -hmm. I want to ask you one other thing, because you have 
experiment, you know, whether or not you think of it that way, experimented with all of these different industries and, yeah. and learning and all these things. So I, I don't make up summer given the version of you that I know that you're one to stand down to being marginalized or not being given the full space for creativity and wisdom and power that you want to bring into the world. Um, so some, I make up that some of the classic challenges women may have had navigating technology careers, you may not have faced, but I realize that is completely a story I am making up. So what I want to know is what is your experience been as a strong and intelligent woman throughout your career? And, and what do you have to say about the state of women in our agile community? Ooh, that one is tough. The summer you know, you know now is not always the summer that existed. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was pretty compliant. I was a pretty good rule follower growing up. And then I realized something very important when I was in a crisis situation and I had to, and it was that I'm going to have to ask for what I want. And so I started practicing that in very small ways and then very physical ways to the point where the turning point in my career, when I moved from marketing assistant, which was a fancy name for picking up and answering the phone to product development was the day um, I went and sat in somebody else's desk who was on vacation and just started doing their job. Wow. I just started verbally asking for what I wanted. And then there was a day where I was like, you know what? They've been gone for more than two weeks. And now I hear they may not be coming back. So I'm going to go sit at their desk and do their job. And lucky for me, just I was able to find like two and a half million dollars of savings by, you know, like not double investing in some trademarks yeah. at the time. So that's how I got into IP. But I started asking for what I want and I started doing what I wanted to do. That casting think, a vision for what it could be. Yeah. I think that's a really important part of it. Yeah. Asking for what you want. Yeah. Still to some extent puts you, takes away your agency mm-hmm. of relying on someone else's compliance with that request. Oh, yeah. yeah. But just that courage, I went and sat at that desk. I started doing what I wanted to do. Right, right. That is a different kind of internal courage and power that a lot of us don't necessarily have the wherewithal to go after. Do you, can you pinpoint like what gave you that gumption? Oh, I'm going to think about that. I do know that the morning I did it, I threw up in the bathroom first before I went and did it. I mean, I was nervous because let's be real. Just standing up and doing something is a wisdom decision. You have to be wise about what you're going to step forward and do because it needs to be a win-win and for you in order for you to actually get what you want. Yeah. Like there's just doing something as a protest that doesn't have to be win-win. And then there's doing something to get what you want. Mm -hmm. So you have to be, you have to pick and choose your situations. Um, I would say it was probably probably the success I had in high school and just going to college. I was bored in high school and um, I had a college professor come in and do a talk and they're like, you know, there are programs for this. If you're bored here in this class, you should just come to mine. I'm like, really? That's possible. And no one told me it was impossible. So I just started doing it. 
uh, ended up getting involved in the programs and they did exist, but I took a leap of faith because someone invited me to do something that seemed impossible Mm. in the current bounds of my job. And that's one thing I would really like to encourage women in agility to do is do something that looks impossible in your current structure and hierarchy, especially if someone invites you to. Those are the moments I think we need to watch for in our industry when we're invited. And as we get better at inviting each other, take that leap. Yeah. And I think it's looking for the door. That's just a, a, just a fraction open, right? The door doesn't need to be completely open. Oh, but that door is cracked. Right. Right. That's the one. Right. That's where those those subtle invitations exist. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you got to throw your shoulder against the door, but that that's really painful. So if the door is open and crack, it's, it's wide. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, today, yeah, leading a culture of experimentation in pursuit of greater professionalism, yes. greater development. Yes. And it's not, and I use the word development explicitly because it's not just skill acquisition. This nope. is not horizontal learning. I am going to know all of the things. This is uplifting the way I make sense of the world around me so that I can do all the things with that stuff I know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, what we're going to talk about today started as a tool for agile development, for building up agile competency mm-hmm. so that people could do agile things in an agile way and feel confident. Yeah. It's become a coaching technique for my coaches that they use with their teams. It's become a conversational technique. It's become something they used in facilitation just yeah. because the act of crafting an experiment drives so much transparency right. and focus and is so evidence-based. Yeah. So as agile practitioners, we're very skilled in using, well, some of us are very skilled in using (laughs) experimentation to drive product development. Yeah. Um, However, we don't often frame that same mindset in developing ourselves. Yes. So what was it that really turned you on to that idea of just leveraging experimentation for professional development in the first place? Um, I was terrified. That's what, uh, that's what led you to do it. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I asked for what I wanted, you know, I was a consultant doing delivery and I was frustrated by the, the lack of path for people who wanted to go on a development journey. And it felt like we were burning a lot of waste heat out Mm -hmm. on our own. Everybody learning everything in their little silos or going away and getting a certification and not knowing how to apply it to really take advantage of the learning. I was frustrated and I was frustrated on behalf of some of the people I worked with. So I wrote a manifesto like proposal, asked for what I wanted, right? And then I started doing it. And I started suggesting to the people I reported to that they should promote me and then pay me to do this full time. And I was shocked when they said, okay. So they said, all of a sudden now you are in charge of agile development all of these agilists here at our consultancy. And I'm like, oh, whoa, I got what I asked for. This is bad. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I was figuring out when I got there. I I wish listeners could see (laughs) you with your your head on your forehead and you're like, this is bad. (laughs) Yes, this is bad. I got what I asked for. This is so bad. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. That was the moment where I started my maxim of always be prepared for unrelenting success because mm. it will it will come at you. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of thinking about how to develop people. Like, do I just want run workshops? Do I just teach them? And I'm like, no, we're consultants. So every hour we spend learning has to be the most valuable hour possible. Mm-hmm. Right. We're not billing. Yeah. And they're, they're paying me to coordinate this. I need to make this as valuable as possible, which means this needs to result in outcomes to our customers. Hey everyone, Natalie Warner here, the President and Executive Director of Women in Agile Org. I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. We're thrilled to have this as a platform to showcase the wisdom of our community. We'd love to get your help to amplify the reach of the series by asking you to go over to iTunes in order to rate and review us. After you're done, Take a screenshot of your rating and review, then post a screenshot to Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn and tag hashtag women in agile. If you do this, we'll not only reshare your post, but also add you to a monthly drawing to receive a women in agile goodie bag filled with WIA stickers and other treats. Thanks for listening. The things I develop in our agilists need to be evident, clear, and have proof that they benefit our customers, each and everything about it. Yeah. And I think we're like the micro industry that we're talking about here, right? The idea of doing professional development for agile consultants, right? Where every hour that you're not with the client billing in most organizations is not considered a valuable hour to the organization. So that ability to get return on that investment and value from that investment is in learning time is huge because it gets shortchanged so often, or it's the yes. thing you do after you've already billed 40 hours with the client. Yes. And on your own, which yeah. means you don't have shared understanding with your other teammates. And when you're working together at a customer, it's great to have shared understanding about what things like, you know, servant leadership and self-organization mean all those squishy yeah. words. They, don't, they have wiggly definitions. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. you and I could dance around the theoretical benefits and how yeah. all of this stuff works. Yes. For three hours. So let's spend just a couple minutes getting down to the real nuts and bolts. Sure. What have you done? What's the structure? And what are those outcomes you're, you've been able to create? Okay, great. Um, our structure is a very lightweight experiment structure. I spent a lot of time with my husband, who is a scientist, thinking about the different types of experiment structures that work. And the ones we landed on are actually the ones they use to answer public health questions because they deal with information, evidence, and data, but they also have a sociology and a psychology aspect. Mm. So every learning activity we run needs to contain the teach, the information, a mentor who has done it in the real world, and at least one experiment that the people going through the learning experience can take away and do. And the experiments, usually I give them a couple of examples, but they all have the format of a hypothesis. If I do X, then Y will happen. That seems so simple, right? But that means you have to choose one X and predict that one Y will happen. And you have to be very mindful about what it is you're going to intend to do. So, um... An example quest for this was we did a quest on outcomes-based sprint goals. Mm. Right? Let's, let's teach them what could be possible with sprint goals if you framed sprint goals as outcomes. 
So we have the teach, we have the mentorship, and then we have this couple of hypotheses they could choose from. And one of them was, if I ask the product owner what outcome they want for the users from a sprint, then I will get a different answer from what do you want to get done this sprint? It's a very simple hypothesis that they could use in the real world to gauge the reaction of the product owner to that shift in mindset. Yeah. Another one was, you know, if the team examines the last few sprints at retro, then we will be able to identify when we actually are completing outcomes versus what you know, the sprint goal was. Yeah. So we form everything into a hypothesis and create a hyper-focus. And they go away and they do these homeworks or these experiments. And we come back and we discuss them and we relate them back to the learning material. The most powerful thing, though, that we've had are the tests. So in every experiment, you need to test what you observe. Here's the key, Leslie. Um, in this type of experimentation, there is no pass-fail. It is not that kind of test. All right. It's more like the test you do on your hot tub when you're testing the chlorine or the bromine. You're testing just to see what the state of reality is, not whether it's a pass fail. Like, it's like, what's the pH here? How much of this do right, I need to add? How much of right, that do I need to add to right. balance it? Or, or like a cookie softness. That is a very yes. subjective scale. When I yep. bite into this cookie, then if, if it is chewy, that indicates this cookie is underdone. Might be true for some people. For other people, then that indicates this cookie is perfect. Yes. So by test, the way, do you like chewy or crisp cookies? Depends on the cookie. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Just Ginger curious. snaps, crisp oh, all the way. very crisp. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you usually have more than one test. And writing tests is the part that's tough. Uh, tests, our test format's really interesting. It's when I observe X, mm -hmm. that indicates Y. Okay. So uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, Leslie. If you oh, had gosh. to write a test for that first hypothesis, if I ask the product owner what outcome they want from the users for a sprint, then I'll get a different answer from what do you want to get done this sprint? What kind of test would you write? What, what, what might you observe that would indicate movement in that mindset? I Well, I would also ask the product owner the question not that way. Mm. to see how they answered what they want to get out of the sprint. And mm. then I'd ask it to them in that more outcome oriented way and see if the answers are different. And then I'd get curious about, so I think I'm hearing two different things from you. I'm hearing this and I'm hearing that. Right. And then bring it back to the users. Cause that's yeah. how you framed it in the, in the hypothesis. Yeah. yeah. And I like that because what you just gave me was a test. So, you know, if I ask the product owner about outcomes in two different ways, um, and I ask them about the differences, when I observe them clarifying the differences, that yes. indicates they do see a difference. Yes. Right? Yes. And um, if they don't, then, then that's observe something that, yeah. they, they, they do not have this clarity of mindset. And that Correct. changes how you coach. Yes. A product owner who sees the distinction between those two things, you can take to the next level. A product owner who doesn't, you need to go back and have some more discussions about product value, outcomes, customers, feedback loops. So good job, Leslie. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, got that. <laughs> I know. It's tough, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm glad that that was an easy one, mm -hmm. um, or at least somewhat easy. The, the interesting thing here is that and why 
even though you're, we're framing this as I'm going to run experiments so I can learn different things. You yes. said that what you really discovered is this experimentation approach has yeah. become the basis for how you all are coaching consulting teams you work with that yeah. are in your client organizations. Yeah. Because I think there are so there are so many folks out there that will stand to that agile consultant Mm-hmm. stance, even though we might call it agile coach, but they're mm-hmm. standing in an agile consultant stance yes. that when they see that gap in mindset for the product owner, they will just tell them about it and how, no, 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 this is not what's happening and tell Correct. them what the outcome version of it should be right. versus actually coaching them to expand and shift their own mindset so they can have that discernment ability themselves. Yes. And as agile coaches, we don't often get to stand in the full stance of a professional coach, for those Mm -hmm. of you who are aware of the difference. Um, But what we do have the privilege to do is stand in a teaching stance. And then what I like to call the empiricism alive stance. Ooh, the empiricism alive stance. Yes. It's like it's like you're making a nice fuzzy little pet out of empiricism. It's great. I love it. It purrs. No. (laughs) Um, So what we do with some of our coaches is they started uh, taking some of the things they observed from their teams and taking them to the team saying, I have a hypothesis instead of saying, Hey, you guys, all the work's piling up and you're not getting anything done. They would start asking their teams questions like, I wonder if we tracked all of this distracting work that's coming after, out at you, what do you think would happen? And the team would start giving them the, when I, you know, if I do X, Y will happen, the team started giving them the Y will happen. And so they just started putting them up on the whiteboard. We think that if we start tracking all the distracting work, then we'll plan better next sprint planning. And that is so simple, right? That is the ultimate simple agile coaching conversation with a team that is struggling. However, it's not a consultative stance. You're not telling the team, you're not tracking and making transparent all your work. Therefore, you're not getting things done or planning correctly. What you're saying is, I wonder what would happen. And they're like, this might happen. Okay. So what will we observe that would indicate that we're having that effect, but use less scientific words than I do. Our coaches started keeping logs of the experiments they were running with the teams. And this was great for our customers because managers of these teams were asking us, what progress have you seen with our teams? And instead of pulling out the tired, agile maturity assessment form that we all carry around to assess Mm -hmm. the maturity of our teams and to track growth of teams and agile maturity, instead they were able to say, hey, these are some hypotheses we developed about how the team could produce more value. Here's how we tested it, and these were the results. This is the evidence. The team did plan better. We have less uh, gap between done and undone at the end of the sprint. And manager, by the way, one of the outcomes is we realized you were one of the primary sources of distraction. Would you like to help us remove that? Evidence really democratizes it being a problem, right? Because evidence is evidence. It's not a personal slight. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we've, we've started using it and it's gotten very popular. In fact, uh, we had some of our coaches taking all the customer scrum masters. We were building them up mm-hmm. and sending them on experiments to go see other 
of their teammates doing events, what techniques they use. And that their hypothesis was if you go observe three other people doing an event, you're going to realize there are at least two things you could be doing better. And maybe one thing you really have to offer your other scrum masters. And that is a really simple experiment, yeah. but it was powerful. And the managers saw what was happening with the growth of their scrum masters when they went out to observe. Yeah. And so they started asking for their own experiments on and how to develop when metrics really, that were powerful for the team. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you really, you've accomplished what you need to do as coach for hire. Correct. When you see the client doing yeah. the thing that you do yourself. Yeah. To well, help We talk them. about it all the time. We're like, let's instill a cultural continuous improvement. Just like buzz, 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 yes. buzz, buzz, buzz. Right. Yeah. How? You, by being, How do you? By right. being a culture of continuous improvement yourself. Yes. And by yes. bringing them concrete tools. You don't need to use this experiment framework. Popcorn flow is pretty great if you've got a problem that needs a lot of rapid experimentation. I think it's by that guy, Agile Sensei. I like his stuff. Uh, there are a lot of different tools you can use, but this is one small framework people can use to track and gain evidence of continuous improvement. It is living, breathing empiricism. And you're always coaching teams to do something for a reason. You're sharing the outcomes with the team. There's no hidden judgment of the team. The team is judging themselves. You're just there guiding. Yeah. And it's one of the most idyllic coaching situations I've been in. I think it's so cool. I think it is so cool. For people, so before we wrap up, yeah. for people that are like, wow, Summer, this sounds really cool. How do I get started? Oh, what kind yeah. of tips do you want to give people that just want to start trying this out? Oh, sure. Um, ooh. I should write a little book or something so people can get started with this. Maybe someday. <laughs> um, the, the first thing is align on a really simple experiment format. Okay. Um, if you're because experiments are open-ended, they need to have a time box. So you can start with this simple format hypothesis. If I do X, then Y will happen. Tests, when I observe X, that indicates Y. Have at least one or two and give yourself a time box and just start recording it. Mm -hmm. And my tip is this, it's going to feel awkward and weird. It's going to feel like you're practicing cursive again. You remember how you're trying to do the F in cursive and it felt awkward for weeks and weeks and weeks to try to do the letter differently? It's going to feel awkward because it requires a lot of self-discipline, but I believe in you because you did it as a toddler. Um, it's yeah. also going to go a little slower, but my advice is just start as Scrum Masters, product owners, development team members, anyone on the product team. Um, start writing yourself some simple experiments and do them see what happens and then present your evidence to someone else on your team and see what happens after that, because that's the power. You can run experiments for yourself all day, but show someone else the evidence you built and then see what happens. Yeah. It's a whole different way of just having a conversation about development. It is. It I mean, is. In, in, in the truest sense of so many of us just show up in Actually, this is where I'm, this is, there was the idea merging and I'm like, I couldn't quite put the yeah, words to yeah. it and I've just found them. When I'm coaching business leaders in my spare time, <laughs> which I do <laughs> occasionally, um, 
we talk about the difference of working in your business versus on your business. Oh, yeah. And this is, there are so many of us as agile practitioners that are working in the business of agility every day, but not on the business of agility every day. And this is that way to start working on our agility, not in agility. Oh, I like that. I like that. Um, Because we can't bring to others the thing we don't have ourselves. Right. That's how this became organic and started moving into our customers, people at the team level and people up through the organization to the point where we have CFOs and CIOs saying, I need to run a wider experiment on this organizational change. And I'm like, oh, experimentation and organizational change. You're speaking my language. Yeah. So yes, start with yourself Mm -hmm. and how you work. Share the evidence and see what happens. It's a very simple concept. I almost feel silly spending 30 minutes talking about a simple concept like this, but the power, the power really surprised me. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So obviously summer, you were geeking out on all sorts of experimentation stuff day in and day out. Um, But I love to inspire listeners with other new things that Mm -hmm. they might could do for their own professional growth, right? This episode was right? A little bit of a masterclass on professional growth and new techniques for that. But what else are you totally fascinated by these days that other people might find inspiring or interesting? Ooh, uh, clinical research. I'm fascinated by clinical research because again, my husband's related to it. So I get to hear all the half conversations, Mm -hmm. but there is these principles around doing clinical research that were instated in 2013. And I'm researching on how we can apply those to how we build good experiments for our teams as coaches. So if you look it up, look up FINER, F-I-N-E-R, in all capital letters, it's the criteria to formulate a really good research question that's, is it feasible, interesting, novel, ethical, and relevant? And if you ask yourself those questions as an agile coach, um, it's also a good way to validate whether you're doing the right thing with your team. That's great. Yeah. That's so cool. And... Make sure you send me that because I want to include it in the show notes. Sure. That way people can just click on the show notes and find it. Um, Are there, be sure to send me other references. People might find useful for the show notes as well. Absolutely. Thank Um, you. I'm happy to share our very lightweight experiment format if that's helpful. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, If people want to ask you more questions or find you or get into a conversation, where, where would they find Summer Lawrence on the internet? Sure. You can find me on LinkedIn at your forever summer. That's all one word. I know. Okay. It's cute. Yeah, that's cute. Um, or you can email me summer.lawrence at insight.com. That's my consultant email. Okay. Or if you want to reach me personally, it's your forever summer at gmail.com. Awesome. I would love to connect with you and talk about this because I could geek out on it for hours. Yeah, I was just saying, I'm, I'm feeling this like if you start trying some of these new experiment framings that you've talked about, like yeah. share your stories, tag us yes. in your yes. LinkedIn post about it, and let us yes. know what you're doing. You're telling me I have to start writing about this stuff out loud. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Guess I'll have to rely on the women in agile uh, program to help mentor me to be a new voice yes. because yes. I don't know how to do this. <laughs> 
you, you, um, you are not a new voice, even though you may feel that way. Oh yeah. I, it, it has been such a joy way. to share with you final thoughts and wisdom you want to share with listeners before we wrap? Uh, yes. So if you are struggling with how to develop yourself and your agile competencies, here's what I have to tell you. You will never be a master. And it's not about that. It's mm. about getting good at getting better. And if you find the skills to get good at getting better, um, you'll always be confident that you know what you're doing and that you're doing it for a good reason. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I, I'm glad. I think it's beautiful. I'm just glad someone else thinks it's beautiful I, too. I kind of feel like I needed to hear that today too. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So thank you, Summer, for reflecting that to me and to everyone. It has been so fun to talk to you today. Yes, it's been a blast and I'm glad we got a chance to do this. Thanks for inviting me, Leslie. You are welcome, Summer. Thanks for being with me. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this Women in Agile podcast episode. Find more inspiring conversations by visiting womeninagile.org slash podcast checking out the podcast series on iTunes, or visiting your podcast application of choice. If you have an idea for a topic, speaker, or feedback on an episode, please reach out to us via email through podcast at womeninagile.org.